0: No one in here is immune to the difficulties of life. Some of you have experienced more of them than others. Some of you are going through them now. Challenges of living on a fallen planet, under the curse of Genesis 3, a world that itself is groaning for redemption. I couldn't help but think of that a little bit when I was thinking about the typhoon that headed for the Philippines, that itself is an expression of a planet that is groaning. didn't have those things in a pre-Genesis 3 world. You won't have those things in a Revelation, Revelation 22 world, a new heaven and you have earth. You won't have them there. But we live in between Genesis 3 and Revelation 20 and 21 and 22. We live in this in-between moment of struggle, of difficulty. Maybe this year has made it even more real to us. We live in a world that is characterized by this this, this struggle, and certainly it's not just the planet itself, but it's humanity's groaning for redemption. Romans 8 talks about that groaning, not only of creation, but we who are the created ones. uh, Humanity, striving for something beyond this present experience. That's where we are. <laughs> That's, that, that, those, that explains a little bit of the struggles that we're having. And I'm not referring necessarily just to this year. I'm just talking to the, the plagues of humanity. You know, it's a, difficult, it's a difficult time. But in John 11, in so many ways, is that climactic moment where Jesus, among us, He confronts that enemy of us all, that, that thing, to, to a certain extent, we all are even struggling right now, this fear of death, though we, many people in this room are Christians, we, we know that death is not the final answer. We know that life is, but nonetheless, we as human beings, we still struggle, and in some respects, we live our, our lives out of dread for that moment where we have to walk those Valleys, you know? And yet, Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus and he confronts our most visible enemy, our most feared enemy, and he says, Lazarus, come out. I think this this story stands in some respects as a representative of of this great battle between good and evil, of, of what Jesus is doing in the world, of His coming to a post-Genesis 3 world and helping us to see a glimpse of what it's going to be like in that Revelation 22 world, the end of the story, that world, as opposed to the one we're in now. John 11 is about death. Uh, it's about the death of a young man, Lazarus, a good friend of Jesus's, And so Jesus experiences not only as God, but as, but as man, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, a man who walked among us and experienced what it was like to be hungry and thirsty, who got discouraged and got angry and experienced grief, you know. there were the, uh, there's the words of a particular commentary that I, I read this week, I, I think are helpful. They were helpful to me because it kind of confronts how we handle death, even in our own Western culture. He writes, in some respects, we live in an age that does its best to deny death, People rarely die at home surrounded by their loved ones. Their bodies are no longer dressed and prepared for burial by the family as they were not too many decades ago. Today this process has been sanitized, taken over by professional hospitals, hospices, and morticians. As a result, few of us have seen someone die. And I dare say that before the 20th century there were few who had not seen someone die. We build coffins that look like plush, oversized jewelry boxes and cemeteries that evoke the peace and serenity of a botanical garden. We use euphemisms such as Mrs. So-and-so passed away on Tuesday to gloss over what we dare not say. All of this is cultural, springing from the heartfelt wish to make death pleasant. But it masks a profound anxiety that even the prettiest funeral service cannot disguise. Perhaps this is why, in the work of the church, funeral services become such potent opportunities for ministry. Here the raw vulnerability of our lives stands naked and we are confronted by a personal fate we would rather not look at directly. The story of Lazarus draws us directly into the pathos so deeply rooted in our hearts. Lazarus is a friend who has died. He is a brother whose illness should never have been terminal. His grave is a reminder of every grave we visited and a parable of the grave we must all visit, our own. Numerous themes come from this story on which we can hopefully, fruitfully reflect. Let's look at John 11, a God who cries. Now, let's talk, let's kind of walk through the story together. It starts with just a statement that Jesus receives word from Mary and Martha that their brother is sick and uh, Jesus got the word that Lord to him to whom you love, he whom you love is ill. Verse 3. And Jesus says to those standing around him, This is this doesn't lead to death. It's for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. John wants it to be clear. I think he wants us to see this for what it is. Verse 5 He says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This isn't just another family. Of course, Jesus loves everybody, but John wants us to know this is a family with whom he had spent a lot of time and whom he loved especially. So Jesus is experiencing this, not just as God who experiences the death of all, but, but, but Jesus who experiences on a personal level the death of people that he loved and that he knew. He had eaten at their table. He had slept in their house. You know, he had hung out with them and talked and laughed with them. He loved them. It's an interesting story the way this goes on, you know. Um, he says to the disciples, he says after 2 days he says, "Let's let's go back." And they argue with him a bit. "Lord, you know what happened there before? They they wanted to kill you. You want to go back there right now? It's probably not a particularly good time." And it's also interesting that Jesus waited 2 days before he went. He got worried. He's about he's about a day's journey away from Bethany where he is now. Bethany is a mile and a half east of Jerusalem, small village on the Mount of Olives. Jesus would go there when he came to Jerusalem, sleep there at night, go into the city during the day and minister and preach and teach. But he spent a lot of time here, but he's about a day's day's journey away from there. He waits two days, which means that Lazarus had died about the time that Jesus got the word, probably not long after the message was sent to him. So you've got the first day he had died. He waits two days. A day's journey brings him to the fourth day after Lazarus had died when he finally gets there. Lazarus has fallen asleep. There's a particular uh, conviction among Jews of the first century, we think, where Jesus waits. I think, I, think there's, I feel pretty confident about this, that he waits two days because he wants to get there on the fourth day, because of a particular Jewish belief that when a person died, that person's spirit hovered nearby for three days. But then once the body started experiencing serious decomposition, the Spirit would then leave. And so by the fourth day, there was no hope of the Spirit entering the body again. That was a conviction among Jewish people who lived in Jesus' day. And so I'm convinced that He waited those two extra days because He wanted to get there outside of that three-day window. He wanted to get there on the fourth day because He wanted there to be no doubt that what He's going to do at the tomb of Lazarus is not some resuscitation, but rather it's a resurrection And so he waited the two days, he got there on the fourth day, and he has this conversation with Martha first, and then her younger sister, Mary. We know this family a little bit. Uh, We know that they were siblings. Martha, probably the oldest, she seems to be the one who's in, in, in charge of the meals, Remember the story in Luke 10 where Jesus went to the house to eat and Martha got kind of upset because Mary was not helping in the kitchen. Remember that story? Martha is the one in charge of the meals. She's probably the oldest sibling. She's the one who's responsible for receiving a guest. And so when Jesus gets there, nearby Bethany, Martha goes out first and she greets him. She's the oldest. She, that's her job. She's supposed to be welcoming people who come. So she goes to Jesus and she states, very frankly, and maybe as only one who could, one could, who knew him very well. She said, verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I don't know what in the world Martha was thinking. I don't know if she had hopes of a resurrection. Uh, I, I don't know. I, all I know... I think what we know here is that she was grieving, and she said, Lord, I sent word. You know what I'm saying? I sent word. You could have gotten here before four days. Why did it take you so long? I think she's being respectful, but she's being honest and frank with somebody she knew pretty well. You could have kept this from happening. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I I know they don't rise again on the resurrection on the last day. I think the the subtext of that is, I don't want to wait till then. There's no reason he should have died. I I know that's going to happen then, but what about right now? My heart is breaking right now. And my guess is, many of you in this room have said something very similar to Jesus standing before a newly dug grave. Lord, I know, I believe in the resurrection but what about right now? I'm, I'm crying right now. My heart is breaking right now. What about this present moment? I, sometimes we want to think about something more than what's going to happen. We want to think that God is present right now. And that He's somehow mitigating the experience of, of this broken planet. You know, And I think that's what she's saying. Jesus says, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, I love John's gospel. John, um, John frames it differently from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He goes about it in a different way. I, I think he's writing maybe 30, or 40 years after they had written. And, and, uh, and, and so he is interesting how he tells the story of Jesus. It's beautiful. One of the ways is he does it with seven signs. Seven signs. The first one, you remember, is at a wedding. The seventh one is at a funeral. So I think it's interesting that the ministry of Jesus in the, in the Gospel of John is, has these bookends. He starts at a wedding and he ends it at a funeral. And he brings joy and celebration into both. As he does at the wedding, he does at the funeral. So he got seven signs, first and the last. But then you've also got these seven I am statements. You've got Jesus saying things like, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd, that's in John 10. I am the light of the world. Uh, you've got him in John 8 uh, in this conversation with some of the religious leaders where he says something about seeing Abraham. And they said, You're not even 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said, Before Abraham was, you remember this, right? Before Abraham was, I am. They tried to kill him because they knew what he was doing. He was equating himself to the Exodus 3 God who said, Moses, when you go back into the land of Egypt, you tell them, I am sent you. And Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. And here in John 11, at the tomb of his good friend Lazarus, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I, th- I think it's interesting the wording here. I am. He doesn't simply say, though this also is true, I bring resurrection, I offer life. That's true, but it's not enough. He doesn't merely bring us resurrection. He doesn't merely offer us life. He comes to us as the incarnation of resurrection and life. He Himself is the resurrection. He Himself is the life. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am am the resurrection and the life. I am the incarnation of God, who by His very essence is bringing life out of death, and one who is the very essence of life, who created it, who gives it. See that? It's a powerful statement when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now he confronts her. He says, do you believe this, Martha? And she says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She left, and she went back and got her younger sister Mary. She said, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. Then apparently she accompanied Mary. Mary arose quickly and she went out to the same place. And when she found Jesus, she said the same thing as her sister Martha had said. Verse 32, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. I'd love to have heard the conversations that they had been having. And a day before cell phones, in a day before you could communicate quickly, for four days, four days ago they had sent the message for the last four days, they had been having a conversation, maybe that went something like this. Why didn't he come? Where is he? We know he loves us. You know how much he loved our brother. Where is he? Martha says, Lord, if, you, if you'd been here, you wouldn't have died. Mary got there and she said the exact same thing. Lord, if you'd been here, our brother would not have died. Now we come to this climactic moment in the story, because here Jesus confronts the the, devast, the devastation of the moment. And I want to drill down a little bit more deeply here with you for a couple minutes, because I want you to see the, the power of this moment. After she says that, Martha said it, now Mary has said it, and verse 33 is a Pivotal moment in the chapter. Okay, look at this with me. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping. I want to talk about a couple of words here. When Jesus saw her weeping, that's kind of ambiguous. What does that mean? I don't know. In our, we, we tend to read things as Western people based on our own experiences. So when I think of, when you maybe when you think of weeping at a funeral... We think about the weeping that we've seen at funerals before. And depending on your background, depending on your experience, you read it that way. The way I would read this is I would read this as a calm, quiet, tear filled moment where Mary and Martha are sad and they're crying. But the verb here doesn't allow that reading, actually. And culturally, we should know better anyway because that's not how they grieved at funerals. It's not how it worked. It's not how it works today in the Middle East. It's not the way it works in many cultures outside of the Middle East today. But the word itself would be better translated something like wailing or maybe sometimes the way we put it, they were weeping and wailing this outward, very extroverted way of experiencing grief. Mary and Martha were falling apart. The crowd itself itself had gathered around, and they were crying. They would, in many many funerals, you probably heard this before, but they would hire people to come in and play music, to play flutes, because it was just a way of expressing grief with noise and with crowds and people wailing and weeping and being very dramatic about it. And so, when Jesus saw her wailing, and the Jews who had come with her also wailing. He was, let's look at this word again. He was deeply moved in his spirit. and He was greatly troubled. John is choosing carefully his words so that we might know what's going on here. You've got the weeping and the wailing. You've got Jesus being deeply moved in his spirit. Again, the way I would read that normally would be something like this. Oh, Jesus is very upset. He's touched by the, what he's hearing right now. And that's true. It is true, but it's just not all the truth. It's just not completely telling the story here. This verb is a particularly unique and strong one. I want to read you something here. It might help you a little bit and read this text in the way that we ought to read it. This word has a particular etymology that helps us kind of get a little bit closer to what Jesus is dealing with here. In classical Greek, this word describes... So classical Greek is like the Greek that predates Jesus and the, as Greek was developing in the centuries before Christ. And So you can often look at classical Greek to see how words were used in the, what's, what's often called the, the, usually called the Koine Greek of Jesus' world. It's different, but it's related, and you can see developments of words. So in classical Greek, this word was often used of animals, particularly horses, who in a time of war or perhaps in a race would snort loudly. It was just, it's supposed to express this internal this, um, eagerness. But when it was applied to humans, it indicated... Let me read this. It indicates an outburst of anger and any attempt to reinterpret it in terms of an internal emotional upset caused by grief pain, or sympathy is illegitimate. The same scholar says this. For humans, it describes, hear this, it describes outrage and fury and anger. So when you read this, Jesus was deeply moved. Don't read that merely as sadness, some sort of internal struggle with the emotions of the moment, but rather read it as Jesus being furious He's having a hard time keeping this on the inside. He is struggling with his anger, which of course leads us to ask the question, why? What's he so angry about? That same writer says this, Jesus' tears are not for Lazarus, whose removal from the grave is imminent and whose life is going to show God's glory. He knows what good surprises are in store for his good friend. Jesus' tears should be connected to the anger He's feeling so deeply, the public chaos surrounding Him, the loud wailing and crying in the scene of a cemetery and its reminders of death, all the result of sin... And death together produce outrage in the Son of God as He works to reverse such damage. You know, I think what's going on here is Jesus being human, being God. He's at this funeral. He hears the weeping and wailing. He feels the emotions of Mary and Martha. And He hears the cries of the crowd. He's walking to the cemetery and He sees just the the very real experience of what has gone wrong in this world. That the way God created us to be His image bearers, to live His life, to honor honor Him and to bring His blessings to the world have digressed and degenerated to a point where we have cemeteries filled with dead bodies and we have people wailing and weeping and crying and they're broken apart and Jesus at that moment comes to that scene and He is furious at what the world has come to and He cries those tears had grief in them they also had anger in them. You see, He is angry at what we've done to this place. He's angry at the consequences of our brokenness and our fallenness. He's angry that His good friends, Mary and Martha, have to go through this. And I think of that often when I go and and maybe you do as well, when you go to a a, a funeral or to a memorial service or to a graveside service, and you think of God is angry at this. He's not angry at us. He's angry at this. He's angry at death. He's angry at the hurt and the pain. He's angry because you're crying. Not at you, but because you have to deal with this mess in this world. So he's not only sympathetic, though he is, he's more than sympathetic. He's angry at what this world has become. And it's just interesting you read it like that. He was deeply moved. He was deeply agitated. He was angry in his spirit. That's his innermost being. Lest we miss that, John says, he was greatly troubled and he said, Where have you laid him? You see, I want you to hear that. I want you to hear some anger in that question. I I want you to read this a little bit differently than maybe you have in the past. He is angry. He cries. He says, Where have you laid him? Where's the tomb? It's like he's got this urgency. i got to get to the grave. i got to get to the tomb because I'm going to deal with this thing. I'm going to deal with it right here. I'm going to handle this situation. And I'm going to show these people what the world is supposed to be like. Where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus cried. All these, you see the humanness of Jesus? The anger... The grief. It's not just anger, it's not just grief, but it's it's Jesus experiencing this range of human emotions of kind of intermingled and mixed in together. Where's the tomb? Lord, come and see. And Jesus just starts crying. If you can't relate to that, I think we can. Because there have been those moments where maybe at a tomb, maybe in a court of law, maybe in a hospital. You've been to that place where you've got all these emotions, anger and confusion and grief and sadness and uncertainty, and Jesus is there. He's sitting there with you. He's in the hospital. He's in the funeral home. He's in the divorce hearing. He's there, in that moment, experiencing the grief with you. Jesus wept. There's so much embedded in that statement in verse 35. Jesus cried. And he goes to the tomb. See how he loved him, they said. Some of them, of course, still doubting. Verse 38, Jesus deeply moved again. That word, by the way, deeply moved, same verb used up above, deeply moved again. So it's not that he's gotten past it. That anger, that rage at death, that grief is still with him as he approaches the tomb. And so, man, I I wish we could see his face. I wish we could see his body language, but I'm, I'm guessing it is something like you've seen somebody who's angry and who's grieved and who's sad, and they're trying their best to keep it all in. They're crying. They're trying to hold it together. And Jesus approaches the tomb in that frame of mind. Take away the stone. Do you hear that authority? Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, he's been dead four days. It's going to be an odor. Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? They took away the stone. He lifted up his eyes and he prayed to the Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. That they may believe that you sent me. I don't want you to... I'm not saying that Jesus lost control here or that he was on the verge of losing it. I'm not suggesting that. Only that he's experiencing this struggle of humanity, of anger and grief. And then verse 43, he said... After he had said those things, he cried out with a loud voice. Lazarus come out. Again, there's an interesting word here. He cried out with a loud voice. This this verb translated cried out is used It is used six other times in the Gospel of John and particularly it's used which I don't think this is a coincidence it's used the last week of the Lord's life. A couple of times when Jesus is entering the city on that Palm Sunday the, the, the Sunday of the last week of his life they, they're Put palms before Him. And the crowds are coming up, coming up and they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Remember that? That same verb is used there. But the other time that it's used is on that Thursday night. Used several times, four times. On that Thursday night before Jesus dies on Friday when the crowd is in the presence of Pilate. And Pilate is saying, I don't find any fault in this man. What do I need to do with Jesus? And the crowd, same verb here, the crowd cried out. You remember what they said? crucifying crucifying let his blood be on us and on our children here the text says jesus cried out it is a verb that means to shout it is a verb. This is not just a, like a, a firm request. It's not a, a gentle word. This is a shout from Jesus. He gets to the tomb. You put all this stuff together and you have Jesus walking there. He's got this rage inside Him. He's got this grief inside Him. He hears the wailing and He sees the tears and He sees this broken world that, that we have made and experiencing the consequences. And so He walks up to the tomb. Where have you laid Him? They take Him to them. He walks up there and He says, He yells, Lazarus, come out and there is not an entity in the world that can disobey the authority of Jesus all authority has been given him in heaven and on earth and Lazarus himself has no choice whatsoever the death that has taken hold in his life has no choice but to respond by giving up his hold over Lazarus. And Lazarus comes out of the grave. Let's spend the last couple minutes thinking about how this changes our experience of tragedy and grief. We still grieve. And I think it's interesting that when he got there and Mary and Martha were wailing and they were experiencing grief, he doesn't chastise them he doesn't say, you should know better. Why are, you crying at, why are you crying about your brother? Don't you know who I am? He doesn't say that. And I think that's what God does with us. He understands fully what, it, what it's like to be human. He cried at the tomb. And, and, and you and your grief, when, you're, when your pillow is wet with your tears, when you go to the grave, or when you get the phone call, or when you're in the, in the hospital, and you get the MRI results back, and your heart is overtaken by worry and anxiety and grief, Jesus doesn't come there with a word of chastisement. He comes there with a word of hope. See, that's what He does. He brings hope to those who are hopeless. And He brings life to those who are dead. And He brings confidence to those who are fearful. See, that's what Jesus does. Our word, you're going to be reading about it if you're following along with our devotional reading. And I think it's Wednesday or Thursday, you'll read more about this story in John 11. But as we think about grief this week, I think it's important for us as Christians to take Paul's word seriously. We should grieve, but not as others who have no hope. Our grief is not complete. It's not absolute. It's not total. It is mitigated by, it is tempered by the fact That we know the one who holds death in his hands. We know the one who stands at the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. We know the one who says to death, you will reign no more. We know the one about whom it was written in Revelation 20. There is coming a new heaven and earth where death has no more authority. Where there is no pain and there is no mourning and there is no crying. And there is no separation and there is no death. And so when Jesus stands outside of Lazarus' tomb, He's not only speaking to Lazarus. He is helping us to anticipate that final day where He will, according to Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 4, He will come with a shout. You Remember that statement? Jesus shouted at the tomb of Lazarus, and He's going to shout when He comes again. And that shout is going to raise everyone. If we're in the grave at that point... You're not going to have any choice but to come forth because He's going to shout your name instead of Lazarus'. And you will come forth. And all that are in the graves will hear His voice and they will come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. And so we stand at gravesides now. The grave of a loved one who followed Jesus Christ and we have hope. But even in those moments where we don't have all the answers. Maybe we're at the grave of someone who didn't know Jesus Christ, and our hearts are grieved particularly because of that. But we can even in those moments have hope because we know that on that final day, we will will finally be able to see things as He sees them. And even those things which are inexplicable in our current experience will be made clear on that day. When we're able to see things as God sees them, we'll look back on our lives in those moments of confusion and 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 wonder, what in the world are you doing, God? On that day we'll look back, and maybe God will give us. I think God will give us that clarity of thought when we're dwelling and basking in the glory of God, and we will be able even to see those inexplicable things and see that God did it right. He did it right. I am the resurrection and the life. And so, today, we struggle at times. You struggle at times. Don't feel guilty. Don't think it means you're not a Christian. Don't think it means God has given up on you. You see, Jesus comes to us in our grief and in our worry and in our anxiety, and he stands beside us and he walks with us. And he says, there's coming a better day. There's coming a better day. That's what he said here. Our experience won't be, won't parallel Mary Mary and Martha's exactly. Our loved one will not come out of the grave now. But on that day, she will. He will. On that day, we'll have clarity and not confusion. On that day, our faith will be realized fully as we anticipate it now. It might be that there are people here who are not Christians. We welcome you. But we want you to have the experience God created you to have. We want you to have confidence. We want you to have faith. We want you to know what it's like to live life not being overwhelmed with the struggles of life, but rather being able to bear up under them because you've got one beside you carrying the load with you. Trust in Jesus Christ. Accept Him as your Lord and Savior. Put Him on in baptism. The Holy Spirit will live within you and Jesus will walk beside you and you can anticipate that day when all this mess, all this brokenness, it's going to be made whole. It's going to be made whole. You can do that today. Maybe you need to come back to Him today. You've, you've, you've obeyed the Gospel. You, you've become a Christian some time ago, but... But to be honest, you've, maybe you've let the mess of the world just kind of get in your way and you've taken your eyes off of what really matters. Why don't you come home to Him today? The great thing about Him is He never gives up on you. And He'll always take you back. If you need to come home, we urge you to do it now. Let's stand and sing this song. If you need to come, please do, do so now.